Welcome to episode four of The Help Side. This is John Jansen, head men's basketball coach at Westcliff University. And I come to you today a little bit frustrated after recording this podcast yesterday before the Warriors-Rockets game. And I don't know what happened, but it didn't save. And so here we are today um, starting over. On our podcast today, we are going to break down the semis of the conference of each conference and preview and take a look at the conference finals. In the analytics section, we are going to talk about your chances of scoring at every second of an offensive possession. And in the strategy section, we are going to talk about uh, out-of-bounds plays and quick hitters. So let's get into it. There was not much drama in the second round of the playoffs. And we'll start in the East with the Raptors and the Cavs. And of course we know this is a sweep. And this is the one that I predicted wrong. And predicting against LeBron James is pretty stupid. But I did it because I thought they were vulnerable. And I still think they're vulnerable. And I was proven completely wrong. Now, having said that, Game one was all Raptors. They had a 15-point lead the whole game. And then something in the fourth quarter happened. LeBron started taking over a little bit, and and they stopped attacking. And all of a sudden you went, uh-oh, I don't see how these guys can score. And you could just see the confidence get sucked right out of the team. And that kind of empowered the Cavaliers. And they went on to take that game. And then in the second game, I was watching going, oh, my gosh, their confidence is gone and they just don't have it anymore. And you could just see the belief in the Cavs. And they start making shots. They start feeling good about themselves. They start having fun. And it just snowballed. And, of course, we get to game three. And LeBron hits the shot. And talking about that shot, you know, I was watching PTI the next day. And Wilbon goes, well, that's not an iconic shot. He said, it wasn't a game five, it wasn't a game seven, it wasn't a clinching game, so it's not that amazing of a shot. So now you're penalizing LeBron for hitting a game-winning shot in game three, and you're penalizing LeBron for sweeping these guys. So Wilbon was saying that he would actually prefer that LeBron loses three games in that round and has to do something crazy like that in game seven rather than sweeping the team. And it's just it makes no sense and it's just more people they just they, they won't let LeBron win. They won't let LeBron be the best. They just always have some reason why it's not that amazing and it's just ridiculous. I mean that shot was so difficult and he made it look so easy. I mean so uh and then game 4 of course was the blowout and at that point you could see that Toronto had really just given up. A couple reasons I think DeRozan was the, was a big factor in them not being successful. He's their go-to guy. He's the guy that demands a double team. He's the guy that gets that offense going. And when he disappeared in games two, three, and four, they don't really have other playmakers. Obviously, Lowry's okay as a playmaker, but DeRozan is the guy that can get by his guy and demands double teams. And then when they step over, that opens up 
Serge Ibaka and, and Jonas Valanciunas and, and all these other guys who can't create on their own. And once he becomes stagnant, then it just makes their entire offense stagnant. It makes it really hard for them to get shots and to get good shots. And you could see that happening, and you could see once once DeRozan was gone, and that was that was it for the Raptors. And then, of course, they fired Dwayne Casey, and he wins Coach of the Year, and he has the best record in the East, and they fire him. And and it's I think it's a little bit of a raw deal because it's LeBron at the end of the day, and LeBron did some miraculous things in that series. But the Toronto Raptors franchise and their GM believe that they have a team that can either get to the finals or win the NBA championship right now. And if they don't think Dwayne Casey can get them over the hump, then I think they're making the right decision for them. Now, do I think it's fair? I definitely don't think it's fair. I think he should have gotten a contract extension for taking that team to the best record in the East. But if their goal is to win a championship, then maybe he's not the right coach for them. I don't know. Um, Maybe they need a more veteran guy. I, I, I don't know, but it's it's a tough break for him, and I'm and I hope he gets another job right away. In the other series, Philly and Boston, everybody in the world is picking Bo- uh, Philly, and I picked Boston, and I just think everyone's underestimating Brad Stevens, and I actually don't like how much hype he's getting right now. When every single game, every single person on TV, all they're doing is crediting him, and I know he doesn't want that. And I think it's taking away from how good the players are playing because, yes, he's putting them in great positions. Yes, they're playing super hard. Yes, they're executing. But all the credit's going to him. And they're still going out there and doing all the work, and they should get some of the credit too. But I do agree he's he's an amazing coach. I mean, some of these out-of-bounds plays they're running, which we'll get to later, are, are just great, you know. And they're getting them good buckets at the end of games. And the way they're playing is the reason why I took them over Philly. They are so unselfish that the only time you see one-on-one is pretty much Horford, and Horford's been able to use his body and battle guys and get to the rim and get layups and hit that little 12-foot fade. And other than that, it's drive and kick, drive and redrive and kick and kick and get these wide-open shots and wide-open drives, and everything's coming really easy for them. And then they run back on defense, and they defend on every possession. And it's really impressive to see. And that's why I like them, you know, after, even after game one, they still weren't even the favorite in the series. I just couldn't believe it because everyone said, well, they can't do it again. They can't do it again. Well, yeah, they can because that's what they do. They play hard, they make shots, and, and they defend. And then you look over at Philly's side, I was a little unimpressed with Ben Simmons. And he seemed to disappear a little bit. And what do I mean by that? You know, in game one, he was okay. In game two... He was okay, but he's only averaging about 15 points a game. And I know he's not a scorer, but he's so big that when he gets to the rim, it's such an easy bucket for him. And then in game three, no, it was game two that he had the one-point game. That's right. It was game two that he had one point. And then he comes back in game three, and he has a nice game, but he still only had 16, 17 points. And then I started noticing that he would come down towards the end of the game, pass the ball off, and go run to the short corner and just stand there on the weak side. And do nothing the rest of the possession except watch. And he wasn't posting up. He wasn't rebounding. He was just standing in the short corner. It made them play four on five. Like if I was him and I wasn't engaged in the offense, I would at least go stand under the basket so my man had to guard me. 
or post up so I can engage my defender so he can't just step over and help, or at least stand near the bucket so I can go for offensive rebounds, but he just went to about 15 feet on the weak baseline and just stood there. I just wasn't impressed with that because in the playoffs, at the end of games, the best players need to step up and make plays, and he didn't do that, and he didn't even have the ball in his hand. And we even saw at the end of games T.J. McConnell in the game, and that ended up being a problem because – then they had McConnell in, and Reddick was making shots. So now Reddick is in there, and now they have these two little tiny guys, and guys like Marcus Smart, and, and these guys are going down and posting them up because they're playing these two small guys. And I think Ben Simmons is going to be a great player, but if he can't guard little guards and they have to play a little guard to guard the fast point guards in the NBA, then he's going to be a liability. And you know it's great that he's 6'10", and it's great that he can handle the ball, but if he can't guard a quick point guard then he loses some of his value. I think the coaching edge was just too much. I really think that Brad Stevens won that series for them with his play calling down the stretch. Because, you know, I think in the NBA, the coaches are a little less valuable than at some lower levels because there's so many possessions. And there's so many possessions where you just play. And all of those games were really close down the stretch. And that's where you have the timeouts and where you have the execution. And we saw in just about every game, Philly turned the ball over. And in the overtime game, they turned the ball over multiple times in the last minute or two of the game. Whereas you see Boston coming down and getting great shots and and great looks because they're executing their plays. And that was the difference in basically every game. So that part is on the coach for sure, on the coaching and the coaching difference. Um, Going to the West, again, not a lot of drama. Houston against Utah. I was impressed with Utah in game two, but the minute that Ricky Rubio went down, that pretty much ended the series. And it seemed like in game two, Donovan Mitchell was taking over and, and playing the role of a, an assist guy and a scorer. But I, you could kind of see that wasn't what he's good at because in games three and four, he was pretty ineffective, pretty inefficient, I should say. And he didn't get a lot of assists. And it, and it, they just weren't flowing as well without Rubio there to make things happen. And Rubio to get by his guy and get angles those open shots and get dunks for Gobert and for Favors and these other guys and stuff. And, and once Rubio was out, they just didn't have that flow that they had in, in, in the second game. And that ended the series really quickly. I mean, game three was an embarrassment. And... They never really were in. You could just see that that was the end, and I feel bad that they were they were missing Rubio for that game because or for the series because it would have been. I don't think they would have won it, but it would have been much more interesting if they were at full strength. And and you don't want to see guys hurt in the playoffs because you know you work all this time to get to these short series, and then you lose one of your best guys, and and you just feel like you didn't have a chance because you were missing those guys. So it's a little disappointing for them, but I think inevitably the Rockets were going to win. And Harden was great, Chris Paul was great, and Capella was great. And that's really what they need, and that's really all they were using. I mean, the other guys, a couple threes here. Obviously, uh, Gordon had a good series, but, but in general, it was those two guys making plays for themselves, and then you know, occasionally hitting one of those role players. But for the most part, it's drive, attack. If you have it, shoot it. If you don't, lob it up to Capella and let him dunk it. And it's just really hard to guard. 
In the other series, the Golden State New Orleans series, again, what I thought it wasn't going to be super close. You see Steph coming back, and he scores 11 seconds into his comeback, and you the Pelicans just had to be like, oh no, here we go. And he was really good in that first game. He was really good in the series. I think he averaged about 26 in the series. But man, oh man, is he still just the most obnoxious player in the NBA. Him and Draymond, I mean, they don't understand that how much people are trying to hate them. I mean, Curry's in the game for 11 seconds. He's a three, and he stands there and poses. He poses every time he makes a shot. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. It's so embarrassing. Like, like pretend like you've done it before. I mean, imagine if Kyle Korver or Reggie Miller, these guys, celebrated every time they hit a three. I mean, it's it's your job. Your job is to make shots. Like, that's why you only see LeBron celebrate when he hits a game winner because you don't need to do it every single time you score. Like, it's we get it. You can score. That's cool. But it's so obnoxious. And, you know, I used to really like his game. And, I and of course, his game I like. But he's so obnoxious, and he complains, and he flexes. And you usually see the guys who flex the most are usually the smallest guys, the guys that aren't that strong. I know LeBron flexes occasionally, but for the most part, it's these little skinny guys trying to tell everybody that they're strong, even though they're really not. And he's a flopper, speaking about Curry, and he gets out of the way of stuff, and then he'll flex when he gets to an one. And it's just like, come on, man. Anyway rant over about Curry and celebrating on the floor during games, but they were just too good. Durant's just too good for everybody. And it was interesting in game three when they got blown out because they they have these lulls. And I know a couple of years ago, Curry said something about being bored, but it's a playoff game. It's a game where you go out there and win on the road and the series is over and they get blown out by New Orleans, and they're sloppy with the ball. And then they come back in game four, and they destroy them on their home floor and end the series. But it's just interesting in game three how they just kind of were just like, all right, we're over this. We'll, we'll see in game four. And then even in game five, where they had this 25-point lead, and they start messing around with the ball, and Steve Kerr calls timeout and puts his hands up in the air like, what are you guys doing? And New Orleans cuts it all the way down to either five or seven with a couple minutes to go. And you're like, are these guys really going to give away this game? And this is their fatal flaw, if they have one, is that they're so arrogant. They're so loosey-goosey with the ball. And they don't really have like an off switch where it's like, all right, we've won the game. Now let's preserve the win. You know, they'll still come down and Clay will jack up a three with 20 on the shot clock. And you're like, well, we don't need any more points. We just need to run the clock down a little bit. And... You know, that's what makes them really good, but it also is what makes them vulnerable to a comeback. Is that they just don't have an off and their arrogance and their and their, you know, we all remember against Cleveland a couple of years ago when Cleveland came back and won that series when Steph Curry throws a behind the back pass in game 7 with 3 minutes to go and throws it out of bounds and you're like, "Are you kidding me?" in game 7? And that's just that's just their arrogance and their lack of fundamentals because they're so good and if they do that against the Rockets they could lose a game that way moving on to the conference finals it's hard for me to preview unbiased after watching game one of both series and obviously I did yesterday the first time I recorded this about the West series 
But let's just talk about what we know because it's already happened. And Sunday, I actually predicted this. I predicted Boston was going to blow them out because Brad Stevens is such a good coach and he's going to get his guys to play hard. And to me, the difference between Indiana and Toronto against Cleveland was two things. Number one, Indiana played really hard. And they didn't have any ego. They said, let's get into a dogfight. And they did. And number two, they had a guy who you could give the ball to who demanded a double team. And that's Oladipo. And Cleveland decided to double team him the whole series after game one. And that opened up their lesser players to be able to make plays because they have that advantage. And they didn't have to do that against Toronto. And I also didn't think Toronto played that hard. Toronto kind of had a little bit of an arrogance because they were the higher seed because they're the number one seed. I don't think they played as hard as Indiana did. And I don't know if that's personnel or coaching or what. But you're going to play Boston and you're going to get in a dogfight with those guys. And watching that game, they defended so hard on every possession. And they played so hard and then they executed and got open shot after open shot, took the ball to the hoop, and they played the right way, and they blew those guys out. And that is what I thought was going to happen with the Toronto series, not maybe a blowout, but I thought that they would be able to use a more complete team to beat Cleveland. Because really, Cleveland doesn't have that many pieces. It's LeBron, it's Love, and then we'll see. And, you know, you know you're going to get six guys in double figures with Boston, and you're going to and you're going to just have a deep bench and every guy that's going to come off that bench and every guy that's going to play is going to get in you and there's not going to be open shots and you're going to have to work for everything and and that equation equaled a blowout win now i'm conflicted picking this series because i picked against lebron and that was stupid and now it's like okay i can't pick against lebron he's my guy he's my favorite player but my second favorite player is Brad Stevens and you know, he's been my coaching kind of hero for years since he was at Butler. And I rooted for him. And now we have a conflict of interest here where I want LeBron to win, but I want Brad Stevens to win too because he's such an amazing coach and he's done it with less talent and less superstars, I should say, than everybody else. And he's done it every year. So I want LeBron to win, but I honestly believe that Boston's going to win this series. And it hurts me to say it, but and it's not going to be the most exciting NBA Finals if Boston couldn't, can't stay with Golden State. But I just think they're the better team. The coaching difference is huge. I mean, Tyron Lue doesn't do anything. But the coaching difference is massive. And that is probably a lot why LeBron's got to get out of there after this year. He needs to play for a coach that will coach him. A coach that will make things easy on him. Not a coach who will sit there and watch him go one-on-one. He's had that his whole career. He needs someone who's going to make it easier. And Tyron Lue is not that guy. The coaching chair is so massive. That's why I think Boston's ultimately going to win this series. Moving to the West, I'll tell you yesterday I picked Golden State. And after watching that game yesterday... I'm even more confident in Golden State. And I mean, I hope everyone listening here watched that game one because that first quarter was awesome. It was a fist fight. I mean, Houston came out and said, We are here for a fight. And it was so impressive. 
They got Draymond out of his mind. They were pushing everybody around. And I was like, wow, these guys are here. These guys mean business. And then you look up at the score, and they're up three at the end of the first quarter. And I went, uh-oh. Because they expended so much energy getting in that fight. And then they're barely ahead. And you go, man, oh, man. They weathered that storm. And it goes to halftime even. And then the Golden State Warriors, the champions, come out in the third quarter and just run them off the court. And there's just too many weapons. You know, it's it's... It's unfair. There's just too many weapons. You know, when Clay Thompson has 28, what are you going to do? Because Durant, Durant's going to get 20. You know, I know Steph didn't have an amazing game, but he had some big layups down the stretch. And they're just too, there's just too many guys. There's too many guys that can do too many things on that team. And they're deep. They bring in Livingston, who's great. They bring in Looney, who's real solid. I mean, they didn't even play JaVale McGee. And they still were just the better team. And they can always have two or three big-time scores on the floor at the same time. And it's, I think it's just too much. Looking at the Rockets side, obviously Harden had an amazing game. And I don't want to say it was detrimental, but he was going so good that he was taking every shot. And then Chris Paul was taking all the rest of the shots, and it, it seemed like none of the other guys could get into a rhythm, you know, because they just didn't have the ball in their hands because it was just all Harden, all Harden, all Harden. And, you know, you don't want to stop him because he can win a game by himself. But against the Warriors, it's really hard for one guy to win a game by himself. And you need the Arizas and the Tuckers and the Gordons to make a shot here and there to make those other guys guard and to spread the floor out for Harden. And they really didn't because they didn't really have that many opportunities because the ball is in Harden's hand so much. And so... Like I said, it's I'm conflicted because you don't want Harden to stop if when he's going because when he's going he can throw fifty up there, but it also kind of took away from some of the rhythm that the other guys had been in in the last few games. And before the series, you know, previewing it yesterday, I thought the X factor was going to be Draymond, and the reason is, and what I thought is I didn't think they would play Javale. I thought they would play Draymond because. The reason other teams struggle is because when you put someone big on Capella and then you switch, then that big guy is stuck on Harden or Chris Paul. And they can't stop those guys one-on-one. They're too big and too slow. But with Draymond, he can switch off, and now he can do a job of at least containing a little bit. Now, I know it didn't go great yesterday against Harden, but he can switch and stay in front of those guys. And it's not like Capella's going to go down and post guys up and jump hook guys or or see, oh man, I got four inches on Draymond, I'm going to go post him up. That's not his game. So you don't really need to match size for size with, and I'm surprised that more teams haven't done that. Because the other teams play their big guys like Gobert, and then those, I mean, Gobert got destroyed by Chris Paul. So why not take Gobert out? Put another wing in there. That's maybe six, seven, six, eight, and a guy who can get a little closer and cause some problems for Chris Paul. And just say, you know what? Okay, I don't know why more teams don't play the way Golden State does, and go small against the Rockets, and just say, you know what, Capella, if you want to go post up, go ahead. But I don't think you're going to score twenty five on us posting up. 
and that can kind of take away from what Chris Paul and James Harden are able to do to those big guys like Gobert. So I don't, I don't even see JaVale even being a factor in the series because I don't think they really need him. He'll just be too slow. I, I think I think Houston's going to fight back in Game 2. I think that Houston has a good chance of winning Game 2. But they're going to have to now win one in Golden State. And if they can win Game 3 or Game 4, now we've got a series. But if Golden State comes back to Houston 3-1, yes, I know Houston has two of the three home games, but you're really giving Golden State three chances to win one game. And I don't think we can remember the last time you know, Golden State lost three games in a row that they cared about. So this game, too, is really important. And then winning one in in Golden State is really important, too. As far as the coaching goes, I don't think there's a big advantage either way because I don't think either coach does a ton in-game. I think both coaches kind of have their offenses set and they just just trust in their players to run their systems and, and make the right decisions. So I don't think that's a big factor. I just think it's going to be too tough to guard Durant and Curry and Thompson and Draymond and whoever else comes in and gets hot. I mean, even Nick Young came out and hit a big shot at the end of the first half. And when they're all making shots, they're just really hard to beat. All right, moving on to the analytics section of the podcast. We're going to talk about points per possession at every moment of a possession. And what do I mean by this? So a few years ago, they came out with this computer program that tracked the chances or the points per possession at every moment in a possession. So if you have your big guy standing underneath the hoop with no one around him, your points per possession is at 1.99999, right? Because once he puts it in, it's two. So if your center is standing at half court with the ball, then your points per possession is very close to zero. Okay, so that's how that works. So at every moment, every dribble, every movement, they've created this software that shows you what, you know, if you're at 1.2, if, you know, if, if at that point you have a little over 50-50 chance of scoring, maybe you're at a 1.1 or 1.2, you have a 60% chance of scoring that possession. And it, and it, and it tracks it based on what's happening in the possession, where players are. What's So basically, let's say that Tony Parker comes off a ball screen and he's driving to the hoop. And let's say Tim Duncan was rolling to the hoop. Well, they might be at a 1.7 points per possession at that exact moment in time. Even though a shot's not going up, just the odds of them scoring at that point are that is that number. Whereas when you, like I said, when you have your big guy holding the ball at the three-point line, you're at a little, you're at very close to zero. So obviously none of us have that tracking software. I think it's really only used the NBA right now. But when we're looking at our own offenses, if you think about that as you break down your own offense and as you watch film on your own team, you can look for places where you're not being efficient enough or when your points per possession at each moment goes low. And if you have a good flowing offense, your points per possession is going to gradually increase during the possession as you get closer to the basket or as you get closer to that open shot you want, et cetera, et cetera. So what you want to look for is if there's times in your possession where you have a lull, where, like I said, a big guy gets a ball reversal and maybe the ball reversal 
the reverse guy is not open every single time right away, and now that defense resets because he has to hold for a second. And now that guy who was trailing a screen or that guy who was a step out of help side or that guy who was running to help side now gets to reset himself. And now you've lost that little edge, that that 60% chance of scoring now just went down to a 40% chance. And also, let's say you have a you run a set, like a, a quick hitter, and it doesn't work. And now you dribble it back out, and now you've your point guard or your shooting guard is now going to go one-on-one, or you're going to set a high ball screen with 10 seconds on the shot clock. Well, when you've reset your offense, that's also letting the defense reset. And so now your chances of scoring have just gone down because... Again, those guys who were slightly out of position, those guys who were tired, those guys who were trailing screens have now been able to jump back into their correct positions and are now able to have their feet set and be ready for this new play that you're running. So when you're running an offense, especially a flow kind of offense, look for spots where your ball lulls or where your chances of scoring go down because maybe the wrong guy has the ball in his hands. And even if it's only for a second, you know, let's say... Or even if, or another situation is if you have a non-shooter in a shooting position. So let's say you have a pick and roll and your four man is on the, in the weak side corner and he's not a three-point shooter or not a three-point threat really. Well, a good team with a good scouting report is going to have their help side guy ready to double or ready to help on that driver and not worry about that guy in the corner. And if that guy in the corner catches the ball, is he going to shoot it? And if he's not going to shoot it, well, when he catches the ball, the chances of scoring is probably at 0.4 or 0.5 because now he has to redrive, but the guy doesn't really even, the defender doesn't even have to close out on him because he's not really a threat from out there. So you want to make sure that at all times during your offense, you're looking, you're trying to maximize your ability to score, and you're not having guys in positions where they can't score or where they're, it's easy to make, or it's easier for the defense to be able to reset. And stop you. So that's something you can look at and maybe make a tweak here and there and, and help your team be a little more effective on the offensive end. Moving on to the strategy session. I got a Twitter comment and the website should be up any day, as I've been saying since we started, uh, but it's actually getting closer for real this time. And someone on Twitter um, talked about some set plays and and I kind of wanted to talk about that in more of a macro sense because it's really hard for me to diagram plays on a podcast and first of all we saw Brad Stevens run some great plays you know the play with Horford where he lobs it over the top it was a great play but he also knows how the defense is going to play so he puts two guys on the backside so the guy feels like he has backside help so now he can three-quarter against Horford and those two guys break to the ball, and now there's no one home, and Horford just walks him down a little bit, so his natural reaction is to get around the front, and there's no one back there, and you can lob it over the top. On a sidebar with that, I am big on guys using the correct hand on the correct side of the hoop. And in that scenario, Horford used his right hand, and he made it. And that's great. But in Game 5 of the Philly series, Joel Embiid had the ball underneath the hoop, and he used his right hand on the left side, and he missed it. And then the ball bounced off his leg, and that was the end of the game. And he didn't have the confidence, and neither did Horford, even though Horford made it, to use his left hand. And I'm so big on using left hands in practice, and I suggest you guys do that too, because 
it's huge. It gets you more and ones because that guy on the inside of you is going to smack your inside hand. And it gets you better body position because the guy has to reach through you to get to the ball. So you won't get your shot blocked as much. And if you have your guys doing it in practice and you emphasize it every single day, then in the game, they don't even think about it. They just use the correct hand because they're just, that's just what they always do. And it's easy. And most, most players, especially when you get to the college level and probably at the high school varsity level, they can do it. They just aren't made to. So they do what they're more confident in, but you want them to be confident with in both hands because when you have that one time, and it might only happen one time every five games where they have a shot blocker, and if they don't use their right, excuse me, if they don't use their left, then it's going to get blocked or they won't even get their shot off, then that's that, that's that bucket that you won't get because they haven't practiced it in practice. But anyway, going back to the set plays, from a macro sense, I believe in executing and practicing set plays in practice all the time. And when I was a high school coach, we would drill these out-of-bounds plays, over and over and over. And I had tons of them. And I still have a lot of them because now with all the film that's out there, they can't. you can't give a scattering report on 20 out-of-bounds plays. But you can give a scattering report on three or four. So if you have three or four, everyone's going to know them. If you have 20 or 15 or 10, well, they're not going to show their team 10 out-of-bounds plays. So you can you can continue to switch them up and be able to get good buckets. Also, in a high school game or a college game, and I'm a defensive coach and I want to have it play a game in the 60s. Well, if I can get my team six to eight points off out-of-bounds plays, that's 10% of my total score for the entire game. So that's a big deal to me. So that's to me, is worth the time of executing it over and over in practice so that when you get into a game, these baseline out-of-bounds plays are buckets. And especially late in games. You know, a ball gets knocked out of bounds, a jump ball, whatever the case may be, you've got to have a play that you can get a wide open shot. And it's not always layups, even though I love plays where you can get an open layup. But if you can get your guy a wide open three or a wide open jump shot, that's a great play. And if you're behind, you know, executing a great out-of-bounds play is not going to take much time off the shot clock because you're going to do most of the action while the ball is still out-of-bounds. So now you can get yourself a bucket and not use time on the clock. So it really is helpful. When I was coaching at Chapman a few years ago, we would run our set plays over and over and over every day in practice until the guys were sick of it, until they knew them like the back of their hand. And it ended up being really effective. And the reason is is because of everyone's going to know your plays. By the end of the year, everyone's going to know your plays. And teams that don't aren't well coached, and the plays are going to work on them no matter what. But if you're playing against a good team that knows what you're running and is ready to defend it, well, if you execute the crap out of it, you're still going to be able to get an open shot. If you set great screens and your screen angles are right and and everyone's coming off sharp and hard, you're still going to be able to get open shots. And the only way to do that is to execute and to practice them in practice and go over them and over them and over them. And the, the lower the level that you're coaching, the more you need to practice them because the less they're be, going to be able to make reads on the fly, right? If you're at the NBA level, if a play breaks down, a guy can go make a play. If you're at the college level, a play breaks down, a guy can go make a play. At the high school level and down and down, some guys can't really always make plays. Guys don't maybe have that high IQ that they can make a read and and see the next option and the next option, the next option. So the more you drill it into them, 
the more they're going to be able to do it in the game. And a lot of times you'll see a great set play in a game and the announcer will be like, what a great pass by that guy or what a great read by that guy. But a lot of times that's not what it is. A lot of times is they've gone over every option in that play. And yes, it's kind of a read, but it's also what he's supposed to be looking for. You know, when I talk to my players and when we have plays that have multiple options, I, especially with the point guards, I talk to them about being a quarterback and I'll say, okay, you're coming off this screen. Your first read, which is in football, your number one receiver is this. And maybe it's a drive, maybe it's a bounce pass, maybe it's a kick, maybe it's whatever, it doesn't matter. And then your secondary read is this. And then if they do this, then your third read is this, you know? And so basically this, the guy with the ball is my quarterback and he's going through his progressions on the play. And so in game, it's going to look like he's making a great read and he kind of is, but at the same time, he's looking for different things and taking what the defense doesn't take away from him. And the only way to get that to where it's so, where he can just see it is to run it over and over and over and see every single scenario, everything the defense might do. And so he can get in the game. He's already seen what they're going to do by some kind of player movement. This player X moves there. He goes, oh, I've seen this. I know who's going to be open. He hits that guy. And the announcer goes, wow, what a read. And it is a good read, but it's also because he's done it over and over. So that's why I'm a big proponent of... Um, drilling these plays over and over in practice and uh, getting it to where it's, it's, they just don't even have to think about it so that they can actually think about playing instead of, instead of thinking about what they're supposed to be doing or who they're supposed to be screening and whatnot. As far as, far as uh, a couple good plays that I really like, I wanted to do, I want to talk about two of them and they're actually, neither of them are underneath. They're both uh, kind of like sideline out of bounds. But one is one that, I saw the Miami Heat do when they had uh, Wade and LeBron a few years ago. And it actually got ran this year, and they scored on it with it too. And I was like, oh, there's that play again. And it's a lob play. And another sidebar here, if you're watching basketball on TV and you see a great play, you should have a notebook that you're writing all these plays down. You should, if you have DVR, if you see a great play, just pause or rewind and draw it on a, on, a, on a sheet of paper or in a notebook and then just catch up during a commercial. You know, it's, it's not a big deal. But I have a notebook full of plays that is getting pretty thick now. And it's plays I've seen on TV. It's plays that I've seen other teams do. It's plays that I've learned from coaches that I've coached with. And then you kind of pick and choose what you like and what works with your team. And then you throw them in there. And... The cool thing about being a head coach, and if you're a high school head coach, you can kind of experiment with stuff. And it's, you know, it doesn't take a lot of time. If you see a play on TV and you think it's a good play, the next day in practice, throw it in there. See if your guys can execute it. And if they can, then it's, and, and it, you think it's going to work, then it's something you can start using in a game. And if it's not, if the guys struggle with it, then just, you know, it's just like, okay, we just tried it. You know, maybe we'll throw it in a game and you just never do. And... You know, as as you get to higher levels, you can put in new plays in game, but it's a lot easier if you've done it even a couple times in practice. You know, you could say, oh, remember that play we ran that one day? And the guys will go, oh, yeah, yeah. And then you start drawing it and they'll go, oh, yeah, yeah, I got it. And then you can kind of throw it in there in a game. It's It's tougher, especially at lower levels, to just throw it in the first time when they've never seen it. But 
you know, if you have a really smart team, you can do that. You can just say, hey, don't worry about the whole play. Just look at yourself on the board and do only what you're supposed to be doing. And then hopefully they can get it. Anyway, back to the play. Uh, it's a end of quarter, end of game play, maybe even end of shot clock. And what they did is they would put Dwayne Wade underneath the hoop and they would put their foreman, who was probably Chris Bosch, at the elbow extended. And he would kind of post up or he, he wouldn't look like he's setting a screen. So he'd kind of post up or kind of put one hand out like he wanted the ball. Then, and what is really important on plays is you're going to have one or two guys in an in a out-of-bounds play or a set play that, are, that don't really do anything, that aren't part of the play. But you have to make sure you ha- give them action that's going to take their defender away and make their defender guard them. Because if you just put them on the weak side at the three-point line, then, they're, then their man's just going to sag in and, and it's going to ruin any kind of play you're doing. So whether what I like to do a lot of times is I'll have a guy who's not part of the play break towards the ball. Because their man will have to come with them so they don't just catch it. So that can take players away from an area that you, you don't want a defender to be, whether it be the basket or whatever. Strong side three-point line, because your defender has to come guard them there. Especially like a shooting guard. I mean, that's the best guy to be a decoy, because you run him towards the ball, and the defenders have to go with him. So anyway, the, the two main players in this were Wade and Bosch. And what they do is they have Dwayne Wade run towards the ball like he's coming off Bosch. And in the NBA now, and against all good shooters, everyone trails. So what would happen is, as soon as Dwayne Wade would pass by the body, and once his defender would pass by the body of Chris Bosch and probably his defender who's guarding him, then Dwayne Wade would just turn and go right around him like a loop, right off of him and go back to the basket. And because that guy was trailing him, he's behind, and they would throw that lob up for a layup. And they got it. And it was a great play. And then, again, it got ran this year. And it worked again this year. And I was—I thought it was awesome. A play I run, which is one of my favorite plays, is called Davidson. And the reason I call it Davidson is because Davidson ran it when I saw it, when they had Steph Curry. And I was like, wow, that's a great play. And I'll try to describe it for you like I hopefully was able to describe the last one. So my two decoys are my shooting guard and my post player. So we're at half court and we put our post player on our block on the strong, you know, on the on our offensive block and he's a decoy. And we put our shooting guard or even your point guard if you want on the far circle at half court. Now, this play can only be run at the end of games. I should have started with this. This play can only be run at the at the end of games if it's a close game and they're pressuring you, or if you're playing a team that pressures you all over the court. When I was a high school coach, I was able to use this play every game because everybody pressured all the time, and they made a lot of mistakes. But at the college level, it's a lot. you get to use this play a lot less often because teams just won't pressure up because they don't want to give away a basket. But if you're, if you're playing a pressure team or it's the end of a game and they're pressuring up on you, uh, like let's say you're up four with under a minute to go and they're pressuring, this is a great time to run this play. So you got your post player on the block, you got your guard on the far circle, and then you have your screener and your other guard on opposite sides of half court around where the volleyball lines are. And hopefully you guys know where that is. And so the play is to clear everyone out. So your guy at the half court circle, he's going to break into the back court. 
and bring his defender with him because that's going to be a guy that you could easily pass the ball to. And your post player is going to break hard to the ball from the block. So now the entire offensive end of the court is open. So your guy in the backcourt at the, at the, on the backcourt volleyball line is going to just jog towards the guy at the offensive volleyball line with his arm up like he's setting a screen for him. And as soon as his defender is next to him, outside of him, inside of him, as soon as he gets close to the offensive guy, he is just going to break to the rim. And the most important thing is to change speeds there. Just go nice and slow like you're setting a screen. Put your, put your hand up in a fist like you do like you're setting a screen, and then you break. And it's an over-the-head pass, which is very important. Overhead pass is very important because if you just try to flick it, your defender could, could, uh, could get a hand on it. Also, it, it'll sail more. You want an over-the-head pass from your out-of-bounds guy, and you just lead him to the basket, and it'll be a wide-open layup. So that play I call Davidson, and uh, it's been really effective for us. So I hope that was valuable as far as you know execution of set plays and out-of-bounds plays. You know, If you have more comments or questions, please find me on Twitter. Uh, it's going to be the help side on Twitter as soon as we get the website going. And uh, I'll try to answer any questions or comments that you guys have. So thank you for listening, and we will see you next time.